You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. Just when life seemed at its most disordered and yucky, we got the homemade-like, I should say homemade light, and scrappy Democratic National Convention on TV. You know, a virtual one. And it had hiccups and delays just like anything homemade. And there were a few awkward moments where you thought the person was not sure he or she was on the air or that they were live or should I go now? But you know what? It was a version of America that made me proud and made me very moved. I have to say, it made me think of the Walt Whitman poem I learned at school called I Hear America Singing. I don't think you want to hear me recite it, but it celebrates the average man. And there's some some women. It was written, by the way, in 1860, so we give Walt Whitman a break. He was a good guy. But the music of mechanics, each one singing his as it should be blithe and strong, the shoemaker singing as he sits on his bench, the hatter singing as he stands, the delicious singing of the mother or the young wife at work or of the girl sewing or washing, 1860. So it wasn't exactly ERA time. But the virtue of being a good, honest person at work, who cares? I mean, that's the poetry of the convention to me. This is all very personal. Day two of the convention, because I'm recording this before day three or night three, brought me even more pride. And the roll call of the states to Biden was as moving an experience as I could imagine, much more so than just watching a microphone dip down at a convention hall with people wearing a ridiculous number of buttons. This was so much finer. And the fact that Matthew Shepard's parents were the spokespeople for Wyoming, it was so touching to see them. And Mr. Kahn, the Gold Star father from Virginia, and Fred Guttenberg, whose daughter was killed at Parkland from Florida, it it made my heart full. I have to say it made me feel that these were all patriots. Now, my guest this week is Kurt Anderson. He is a native of Nebraska, and he's had a remarkable career in media involving maybe all of the most important outlets in this country. A short bio includes his working at Time Magazine and then later writing a column. He co-founded and edited Spy Magazine, the satirical monthly at which I worked with him. He became the editor-in-chief of New York Magazine. He was the co-creator and host of Studio 360, the public radio show, for 20 years, and the writer of books, the giver of talks, the soul of wit. His new book, Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History, was just published by Random House, and it's a work of philosophy and political philosophy and history and witty and fascinating. America has lost its way and I didn't even notice and maybe you didn't either. And this today, you'll hear part one of a two-part conversation with Kurt. But first, my five things. Number one, patriotism. 
It's not about holding the flag. It's not about hugging the flag. It's not about wearing those little enamel pins that are now mandatory if you're running for office. It's about being a good person and caring about your neighbor, even if your neighbor wasn't born here, even if your neighbor isn't a citizen. That's what being a patriot is to me. It's coming to the defense of someone who was wronged. It's people like Marie Yovanovitch and Alexander Vindman who did the right thing and really cared about being American. It's watching Colin Powell and President Mrs. Carter and the older woman, as she defined herself, Kazi Watkins in North Carolina, who said, I've been through this a lot. Let's just get to it. That was patriotism. Number two, Michelle Obama. I could have listened to her talk all night. Her voice is so soft and steady, and she's emotional. She's depressed. I'm depressed. We have a lot in common. She's tall. I'm tall. You know what? I was startled when she said Trump's name. She has been so careful never to, you know, never to really just blame him because, of course, he's, he's a fighter. But she did use his name once, and she pointedly repeated or used his phrase in response to death of people by COVID. It is what it is. That was a point that she won. Number three, the Bidens. At long last, we have a couple and a family that seem normal, that are not in it for the money, that actually care about one another. Listening to Jill talk about making a family whole again. She's mom, mommy's in heaven. The Bidens really, if anybody had a reason to be cynical, it would be someone who has whose life has seen so much tragedy, and yet Joe Biden is the most hopeful guy. His, his smile lights up the room, and you know what? We need that now. We need his decency. We need his love of people. That is what we haven't had for three and a half years that feel like 10 years, and that's what we need. We must, must get it back because in this time of pandemic where we are separated from our loved ones, seeing a politician you can trust on TV talking to you, caring about people, it's a must. Number four, science. Ah, it's second appearance, maybe third. I'm so grateful that the Democrats believe in science. It's the only way to solve the pandemic, the coronavirus, and climate change. And number five is the Democratic ticket. The Biden-Harris ticket looks like America. Maybe you're disappointed that your favorite candidate isn't heading the ticket or isn't on it. You know what? The team is all going to be together. We have mountains to move to fix and undo all the harm that has happened in the Trump administration. And everyone who participated in the primary process has had input into where the platform is now and what we're going to do about it. And I'm talking about Tom Steyer and Jay Inslee and Andrew Yang and Amy Klobuchar. They're all going to have input coming up. My friend, Kurt Anderson. Don't go away. I am 
extremely excited to talk to my guest, Kurt Anderson, the author of a new book called Evil Geniuses. And honestly, it's such a great title because right now we're all talking in superhero and elevated terms. The Unmaking of America is the subtitle. Kurt and I were work wife and husband at Spy Magazine. I was his second wife, but... co-founded it. He was the host of Studio 360, as many of you know, on National Public Radio. He was the editor-in-chief of New York Magazine. He's had a, a remarkable career, and this new book is a head-turner, head-spinner, page-turner, finger-tapper. It is a shocking new history because Kurt wrote a book about now, and I'm part of it. And I see all these things that I never thought about. Welcome, welcome. Oh, it is my pleasure. It is my dream come true. Here we are, you know, re- recapitulating our our, work, our professional uh, spousalism. Uh, I'm, I couldn't be Yes, happier. thank you. This is a dense and frightening book and, and a little bit chewy for me because throughout the book, I was taking notes. And if I were a 15-year-old me, I'd be writing so true (laughs) and ah in the margins. Your thesis is that we've gotten to this bad place of inequality and culture war, but it started a longer time ago than we think. Yeah, it started when we were mere teenagers, really. And uh, and by the way, yeah, it's chewy and it's dense and it's all those things, but it's fun. It's it's entertaining. It right? is fun. Even it's as fun. you're being disturbed oh, yeah. and appalled and depressed, it's it's an entertaining ride into the abyss. It's entertaining. Oh, yeah. you use the words the whole Megillah oh, yeah. next to hegemo- hegemony, which I can never say hegemony, Correct. and you it, you feel smarter for oh, every okay. page you anyway, digest. This is what I, I don't okay? want people to think it's yeah. like you know horrible homework, but. Uh, Oh, it's not homework at all, but, you know, for somebody like me who may have been oblivious through the 70s and 80s and preoccupied, it tells me a lot about what I should be looking out at and should be looking back at and forward. And that's another theme of the book. So, yes, I I didn't know. Again, I was, you know, I was 16 years old in 1970 and 71. But that's when it started. That's when my evil geniuses began getting together and saying, holy cow, this late 60s Ralph Nader, uh, anti-war, anti-establishment, anti-business left-wing thing has just gotten crazy. And we might be washed out of existence and free enterprise might end. And oh my God, we're freaked out. And, and truly, they were. And they got mm-hmm. together in various ways and, and and made plans to take back the power of the rich and powerful and the business itself. And 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 at first, I think, uh, as I document, really just trying to keep it from being taken out and shot, not literally, but, you know, just wanted to stop it where it was. Then they were so successful so quickly, they just kept going and kept going and kept going and had this long plan of how to change laws and how to change regulations and how to change people's thinking and sort of shift mm-hmm. the paradigm and all of that. And by 10 years later, they elected Ronald Reagan and 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 just kept going. They never got complacent. They just kept going. And as they twisted and changed the way Americans thought about what was fair and the, the kind of new deal, we're all in this together and just the way America was, uh, they, they, they changed that and, and kept changing it. And now, younger people and many older people just feel as though this 
money is everything and money values overrule all other values is just the way it is. And it it wasn't always this way. No, it wasn't. And the they that you speak of, some of them worked alone on this mission and some worked together, but many of them were very well decorated um, and uh, revered economists like Milton Friedman. Right. Like Charles Koch, well, Charles Koch, of course. I wouldn't say well respected. What an interesting character and an earnest. I mean, again, not just a gazillionaire, also an earnest, you know, libertarian fanatic. Um, No, it's true. And and uh, Milton Friedman, I I always thought, oh, he, he, whatever. He's a he's a funny little guy. University University of Chicago Chicago and won a Nobel Prize, Nobel or something. But but he is he he was evil and he was a genius and they and and they were brilliant. I, I, I'm not suggesting it was a conspiracy where all 23 of these guys got in a room uh, in 1970 and, and, and went forward with their plan, but it's an awful lot more like that than I ever imagined. Yeah, yeah, that's really crazy. The idea that I want to chew on some more is the stagnation versus future mm-hmm. look versus nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And I feel, not just because you mentioned a book I wrote, but I feel very much like I was a tool. You know, the Preppy Handbook was one of those cultural mm. things that reveled in nostalgia in some respects, but certainly I was pointing, I'm not political way, but in a cultural way, to the old established culture. Right. No, I mean, I, I had never. I apologize. I, well, I, I spent a lot of this book apologizing uh, and yeah. mea culpaing. I call yes. myself a, a, a liberal, useful idiot. Um, yeah. uh, no, I think there's a lot. I mean, and, and your apologies are, I mean, you know, preppy handbook. Yes, it served the forces of evil. Yes, yes, Lisa. But <laughs> but it wasn't so bad. You you. I don't think you'll be shot. You might go to jail for a year or two after the revolution, but um, yeah. No, it, it was, there was this, uh, I, I had independently of any of any thought I had about what happened to the economy and how did everything get so unfair and how did 80% of Americans start really getting this raw deal where their incomes just don't rise as, as well-to-do people keep doing better? How did that happen? Before I ever had this evil geniuses set of subjects in mind, really, I, I've been interested in nostalgia and this kind of stagnation stasis that happened i wrote about talk it. Wrote, about the picture yeah yeah in back in 2007 uh i was reading the new york times as one does and and in on in paper as one did and mm-hmm. uh I was reading this story about ian schrager and uh steve rubel and and this and their careers as disco impresarios and now boutique hotel impresarios and everything there was this picture of the two of them and their staff of beautiful young Waiters and maitre d's and so forth from Morgan's, the original boutique uh-huh, hotel. Their hotel. Uh-huh. And I was looking at this picture. It was 20 years old at the time. It was from 1986, I believe. And I was looking at it in 19, 2007, something like that, basically 20 years. And I thought, and I, and I, and I, and I couldn't take my eyes off. And I, I realized why I was so interested in it um, was they all looked completely contemporary. None of nothing. It was 20, 21 years old. 
Nothing looked dated, not their clothes, not their hair. I mean, you know, Ian Schrager had a collarless shirt. So, okay, that was, you know, not current in 2007. But, <laughs> but, it, but it looked, everybody and everything looked current. I thought, what? what's weird? And I so I, I just went off on this little research project where I listened to music and looked at design, looked at cars and architecture and all kinds of things in, in culture and pop culture and high culture and saw how little things had changed in those, in those 20 years. And, and then I realized that's weird because in the past, every decade was totally different than the last decade in all of those ways, right? The music was different. Things looked right. different. People's hair looked different. I mean- Hemlines, wh- all of totally, it. Totally, yeah. totally. And, and, and that really got to me because I immediately thought of a cutout doll book that I had. And it was a fashion book I had when I was a little girl. And just by looking at hems and necklines and hairdos- you knew exactly yes. which decade. Yes. And we don't have that. No. We look exactly the same. And many of us take pleasure in the fact that we're still wearing our clothes that are older than our kids. Right. Jeans and sneakers and t-shirts. And I mean, the, right. the way everybody started dressing in the 1980s is the way people we're, dress in the 2020s. It just is. And it's bizarre. Because yes. in, in America and in modern times, this was never the case. Just normal people could say, oh man, that looks dated. That looks very 50s. People could right. say in the 60s, that looks very 60s. People could say in the 80s. In the 70s right. or 80s. Right. Yeah. And, and then that yeah. stopped. So, so what, and then it stopped. Yeah. Right. And, and what, I, what I realized is that there was this just plunge into nostalgia after the late 60s. You know, mm-hmm. oh, let's go back, you know, to the nicer, calmer old days in all these ways. And to a degree, fine. You know, it was a reaction, fine. But we went deep, deep. We kind of wallowed in that nostalgia. We went too far, yeah. We did. And, you know, and, and the great official property handbook, of course, in 1980 became, mm-hmm. a, you know, part of that like wonderful American, weren't we great, weren't the old days great kind of thing. So there was this generation of nostalgia mania. And then this other thing, this stranger, and I think kind of unprecedented thing where not only are we still into nostalgia and not only in the modern age does the internet allow us to just look back at old yes. stuff 24-7, <laughs> right. but, but, but this other thing, this, that, you know, since hip hop, and nobody has, has, has really argued this with me, since hip hop, 70s, 80s, early 90s, nothing else really new has come along. <laughs> And and wow, and, and it's weird. So I th- I can't I had this theory going, and then I realized once I got into working on Evil Geniuses that it seems connected, not in an obvious way, but that certainly the Reagan Knights and those guys used nostalgia absolutely to mm-hmm. to, to get him elected. And it's morning in America, and mm-hmm. life's all in old town again, and you know a small town, and it isn't wonderful, and we're back in Bedford Falls. But then I also think the stagnation of nothing really changes in the way things look and sound and all that. Everything, and you know, technology and computers are the only new things. The nothing really changes kind of serves their interest because like, hey, nothing ever changes. You can't change it. You can't, you know, no, no big. Well, uh, and also everything know? is fine. Yeah. When I, it's not fine. Exactly. And, and, and yes, exactly. And, and everything is weird and new and different in so many fundamental ways like yes. unfairness and not to mention pandemics and everything and else. Pandemics but, and everything. But the fact that things look and sound and feel the same in so many ways is this weird 
kind of matrix-like <laughs> reassurance that, nah, yeah. don't worry, it's all the same, nothing's that different. You know, I, I, I don't know I would you- argue that making sequels of all these movies Completely. Is, is part of this operation. 100%, 100%. And, and, and again, there were sequels now and then and, and all that when we were younger. It's now the main thing, right? It's the, it's main, the main thing, thing. on Broadway, in Hollywood. Oh, you know? it's, it's really unusual to have an original script of any kind right. on on stage or yeah right so I, again not not that the evil geniuses are so geniusy that they made this happen but i do think my point is that it serves that interest it serves the interest of thinking no big change really not possible anymore this is just the way things always are and always will be and it's true just as it's true of movies it's true of how the wealth of america is split up sorry it's just what it is. Well, where's headquarters for the evil geniuses? It's it's besides the White House. Is it think tanks? Yes. Because you, yeah. It's a lot of places. I mean, it's it is the C suites of the two hundred largest corporations. I mean, right. They, they got together at the same time in the early seventies, created this thing called the Business Roundtable. The CEOs right. of the biggest companies, and and it was a new species of thing of these these guys who would get together, not just ask for favors from government for their own companies, but lobby together personally with the government on behalf of big business. That was a new thing. You know, so it's in all those corporate executive suites. It is in the think tanks that were created and magnificently funded in the 1970s and 80s. Right. By by not just the Cokes, but this whole gang of billionaires. Richard Mellon scape. Him and John Owen and Joseph Coors and all these guys. It is in universities and and colleges. They have their own, effectively, university called George Mason University. Yeah, George Mason. And outside outside Washington. I've been there, yeah. Mm -hmm. They took over and turned its relevant parts, the law school and the economics department, into their headquarters. But, you know, the... the and, and a feeder to uh, Capitol Hill, oh, a total uh, totally. feeder. And these yeah. think tanks and so forth. So they really did create this counter-establishment that would not only, once they sort of changed public opinion and tra- chattering class opinion in the 80s to like, oh no, the market's good, the free market's good, we're, we're good with that. They didn't just do it, and then they were done. They they created these these sets of institutions to keep it going and keep pushing it right. You know, on the on the academic front, on the university front, which I know is a expertise of yours, the the Cokes yes. uh, still are giving a hundred million dollars a year. Yes, two colleges and universities, including every Ivy League college, including every Ivy League. <laughs> no, to to yeah. to pay for professors, symposia, to to push their point of view. Now, obviously, there's nothing illegal about it, but it's it's just, and that's just one part of this right. massive forty-five year long effort to change the way people think in America. So, you know, I had these hunches and I, around the turn of the century, I thought like, hey, this, this isn't going well. What, what, what happened here? <laughs> and, 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 but until I sat down and did this work for a few years, you said you, as you read it, you were shocked. I was repeatedly shocked as I was doing the research. Like, I okay, didn't know like this. The, like, like Nixon. Let's talk about Nixon for a sec. To me, because I was in, I guess, the equivalent of junior high when Watergate happened. To me, he was just a bad guy, you know, yeah. stealing an election. Are you that young? And, How young are you? Uh, a few years younger than you. Oh, interesting. Not okay. that much. Okay. But so, 
you know, 14 is not powerful, especially yeah. if you don't have a car and you yeah. live in Manhattan yeah. and people- And are no smart. TikTok. No TikTok. 17 is already, you're driving and you're about to start college. Yeah. But for me, you know, I was 14, maybe 15 at the most. And so Nixon was bad. Mm-hmm. And I was a kid who volunteered to pass out flyers for McGovern and Al Lowenstein and uh-huh. all the liberals. And- you know what? I just saw Nixon bad, right. Democrat good. Yep. I didn't realize that he put forth some very progress, socially progressive laws. It, it, I mean, yeah. that's that's something that they don't teach you. They don't here in our in our liberal dominated media there in history. Yes. They haven't. No, it, it is it is extraordinary. That has surprised me for a long time, but it belonged in this in this book because he governed to the left of you know, basically any president in our lifetimes. I mean, he just did. Yeah. Not not because he was such a bleeding heart and wanted to help his fellow man and believed in civil rights so strongly. I mean, not. Not. But but because it was such a liberal time. It was such a left time that he, he took office, right, in 1969. So he didn't really care about that stuff. And like, sure, fine, start your EPA, start your Equal Employment Title Commission. Title uh, yeah. Do all this, fine, fine, fine. Uh, what he cared about, of course, was China and Vietnam and foreign policy. Right. So the, the the Nixon government domestically was was just amazing. And again, as I say, like, whoa, who knew? But uh, for my purposes of the story I tell, that's how kind of complacent liberals were about like, yeah, yeah, we're in charge. And yeah, well, you'll have your Nixon occasionally who won't be as liberal as we'd like. But, you know, it's all fine. It'll all keep going the way it's been going since the New Deal. But these evil geniuses got together and said, nah, not not good enough for us. And, and Milton Friedman thought Nixon was a horrible socialist liberal for mm. doing wage and price controls and they Amazing. And, and they and they took it back and changed the way everybody thought about fairness and the government and market values being the only values. Before we get to your five things Kurt, you talk about the Republicans moving right and the Democrats moving to the center, which of course moves further and further to the right as we go. Because when you you and I were kids, it was perfectly acceptable and even admirable to be a what we called a Javits Republican or a Scoop Jackson Republican. Or a a Rockefeller Republican. A Rockefeller Republican. I guess that was the official term, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, could you just explain that to young people who may not know what that meant? Well, th- there was th- this sense of liberals ran everything, including the government. I mean, you know, some less liberal, some more liberal. But for instance, back then, even in the 70s and even into the 80s, a third of all, you're talking about senators like Jacob Javits, right. a third right. of all Republicans were liberal senators, were liberal right. Republicans. And by the way, Republicans only had a third of all senators. So, right. so Democrats, including, of course, Southern racists, but Democrats had two thirds of the Senate seats in America. Republicans had a third and a third of those were, were guys like Jacob Javits, right? right? So it made it that much easier for Liberals and Democrats to go, oh, sure, let's compromise with these conservatives. Yeah, let's talk. We'll meet somewhere because they were, they, we, whatever, were, were in charge. And the right by, by keeping its eye on its ball of more money for rich people and for more power people. for big business, they, they, they just, as you say, they, they kept moving to the right and these like kind of lazy in, in, in command, 
liberals and new Democrats and neoliberals sort of say, yeah, sure, oh, yeah, they have some points. Hey, uh, let's move to the center a little bit. Let's keep moving to the center. And, of course, the center goes starts at the 50-yard line. By by the end, the center is at the fucking goal line. You know, I mean, we just keep moving right from the, yeah. from the 70s through the end of the century. And the giant irony is that one of those Republicans is now considered the most, oh, my God, is she a socialist? Pocahontas yes. is Elizabeth Warren, right. who to me, is one of the great minds in Washington, if not the greatest. Kurt? Yes? Let's talk about your five things, please. I mean, there's so much to talk about, by the way, that I would love it if you would do a second part with me. A second part of what, five um, more things? An interview. No, no, that's too hard. But let's have a second conversation where we talk about more contemporary politics. Like your your friend, your friend, Donald Trump. That's what you're talking (laughs) about? Yeah. Yeah. That one. Okay. Okay. It's your fault that I met him. Kurt Anderson's five things. And let me just say that Evil Geniuses is a work of not evil, but it's really a work of genius and it's wonderful and yes, fun to read and will make you, if you're, if you're someone who thinks that you know the score because you read the paper and you listen to NPR, you realize you've missed a lot. Not your fault because some of it happened when you were not born or when you were a kid, but Kurt has uh, laid or, it out for or you. Or when, when, like you and me, we're doing okay. Hey, this system wasn't, didn't seem to be screwing us over. So we, in our, the way people do, didn't pay that much attention to the That's people right. who were getting screwed. Right. Exactly. Okay. Your five things. Number one, your new intraocular lenses. Yes. Yes. Well, see, this is one of the one of the upsides of oldness. Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard about this. Yeah. yeah. No, I it, the- I have all, I've developed all various issues with. <laughs> With my eyes, and we can just go into a whole old person thing and talk about all of our <laughs> medical issues. But uh, no, I, I have various things in my eyes, and one of them, one of the lesser ones, is cataracts, which all people all people get. By the way, not I cannot wait till I all get those. people get. They, yeah. You just may not. They may not be bad enough to have to have them removed by the time you di- before you die. But you know, everybody gets them. Anyway, so I had these and they said, ah, why don't we just do this first and see if that helps your vision? I said, okay, fine. So I, I last month I went in and had my cataracts done, which was in this COVID time of going into a medical facility was yeah. exciting and scary on its own. Scary, yes. Anyway, and I didn't even realize quite until like I was, you know, anesthetized that it also involved putting in bionic artificial lenses to lenses. replace your old lenses. Uh-huh. So that, those are intraocular lenses. So ah. as a result, as opposed to the last time you and I saw each other in person, I can, if I wish, not wear glasses and see as well as I could when I was 17 years old. Oh, my God. It's that's weird. fantastic. It's weird. And, of course, there's been LASIK, but this seems to me like more more bionic, more, more $6 million man, more fundamental. Yeah. yeah it's crazy. You have, you have foreign pieces in you. Yeah, I do. And, and, but and, you can see. And, and yes, not, not only is the, is the whatever mist of cataract nests removed, but I have these perfect lenses that give me 20, 30 vision, you know? So here, so anyway, it, it has, as you can imagine, has, has, uh, it's something I, I have thought a lot about these last weeks with this new, this new superpower, this new elderly superpower. The elderly superpower. So you don't wear glasses at all anymore? Well, it's, it's, now it gets boring. After this totally settles in for another month, then I go get glasses to make it 2020. And if I want progressives to be able to read, blah, 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 blah. Okay. But, okay. But yeah. unlike my last 40 years, 
I can go outside and walk around or drive in the car with my wife or whatever and look around and see everything perfectly fine without glasses, which is weird and kind of fantastic. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Okay, number two is your daughter's writing and design work. Oh, yes, my daughter's. My daughter's, my yes, grown daughter. Yes, your daughter. daughter's, yes. Uh, uh, Kate Anderson, Lucy Anderson. Um, Kate is, is uh, well, first of all, most recently, what they've done together, and I, and I can't tell you how moved I was by it and by their doing it. As soon as the pandemic began, they and a friend of theirs decided they were going to publish a paper called the Pandemic Post. Uh-huh. And that was cool. And, and, and I thought, okay, that would have been cool if they had just done it in Brooklyn with you know, where they live on, you know, online. That's what right. the kids do these days, right? That's what the kids do. Yeah. <laughs> um, instead, so they got all these contributors, people they knew, friends of friends, people all over America, people all over the world, young people who were, really? you know, had their stories to tell about pandemics and recipes that they were cooking, all kinds of things. And best of all, to my old fogey way, way of thinking, they printed it as a broadsheet. As no a, kidding. As a broadsheet, I don't know, 16-page wow. newspaper, we're, for some reason I don't still don't understand, printed in France. And huh? wow. on top of everything else, uh, gave all the they made money and gave it all to various uh, pandemic-besieged organizations and groups of you know poor people and waiters and whatnot. And, How and the, fantastic! Yeah, no, so so and and Lucy, the designer, designed it and also edited it. And Kate, the writer, wrote some and also edited it and uh no that made well, me also happy. your daughters are best friends they're, i mean that's pretty great it, too well again a, a thing in the mental list of what you want your children to be uh that, yeah. that i never really had that and and as soon as they as soon as the younger one lucy got out of college and they moved in together i thought like holy yeah. cow this uh, my my work is done here i mean <laughs> yeah. they, they like I'd each other so. that much and and uh so yes and they're working together and and you know Independently of this nonprofit uh, enterprise, the Pandemic Post, they, they uh, you know, Lucy has a great freelance graphic design operation, and Kate works writing copy and stuff for a retail company. And so I like seeing them kind of in the family business yes. <laughs> in general. But but this thing they've done the last few months in the pandemic, just you know, you can just imagine. I, I just my heart, my heart yeah, swells. Uh, yes, you know, and yes. I'm not a, as you may have noticed. I'm not that soft and squishy of a person. So, right. so when this came along, I can I can vouch oh, for that. Oh, I, yeah. it just made me. Oh, yeah. Anyway. yeah, I love that. Um, number three is your wife's Anne's Gardens. Mm. Tell me more. Well, we have a place in in Brooklyn, New York, where we've lived for the last uh, 31 years, and we have this little place in the woods of Northwest Connecticut. And in both places, in the last few years, really, the last decade, really, but especially now, and especially in the pandemic, when what are you going to do but garden? She has created these magnificent flower and green gardens of various kinds that I live with and am surrounded by, and I don't have to do a lick of work. (laughs) I just smell them and look at them and have my life enriched by them. And and in Brooklyn, our house, where we spend a lot of time on the this ground floor, there's a garden out back and a little garden out front. And it's and so I'm surrounded by greenness. It's just, I realized thinking when you said, oh, what are your five things? I realized really one of the great luxuries of my life is this, just this, this gorgeous greenness that surrounds me <laughs> for which I do nothing. No, that is that is lucky. Maybe you'll send me a picture. I will. So I can post it I on will. the website. I and will. I have to say, living in an apartment in Manhattan is great ordinarily, but since March 13th, what I yearn for is green. So I totally yeah. understand. Yeah. 
No, it's funny, you know, and being, we spent most of our time the last five months here in uh, in Connecticut where I am now. And and going back to New York more and more and more, but, you know, spent 10 days there just now. But just the, uh, yeah, the, the green, the nature, I, I, mm-hmm. I've never spent this much time outside New York since I moved to New York 40, mm-hmm. 44 years ago, you know? So mm-hmm. it is, it has, that has been a, yeah, my inner nature boy has, has been revealed. It's another surprise, right? <laughs> yeah, a bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, number four, roasted salted pepitas. Yes, yes. Uh, Which are, are those the same as pumpkin seeds no. or not? They're smaller, and they're mm-hmm. they're not from pumpkins, and I don't know much about their provenance or or, or natural existence. All mm-hmm. I know is that again, <laughs> during the pandemic, <laughs> one day when my provider and spouse and Kramer brought home some <laughs> salted roasted pepitas, I'd had them before, but I realized somehow I don't know. I, I just I, I eat like a I don't know a pound of them a week. I mean, it's just. <laughs> It's, 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 and also they, they seem, because they're just little seeds, right? They're like sunflower seeds, but yeah. much, much better than sunflower seeds. They feel healthy. They're seeds, right? But right. they also feel like the pleasure of like potato of chips salt. and yeah. yeah. Oh, anyway. So that's just, it's, it's not, again, I'm not going to die on the hill of roasted salted pepitas, but the last few months they have been uh, a revelation. As you know, what I think we've all realized that the simple pleasures yep. are what we have to hang on to. Yes. And your very last thing, number five, a very, 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 very passionate one for me is imagining the day he is finally vanquished. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be anybody. It can be anybody. No, of course, it's the it president be, of the United States. I know. Of and course. and uh, early on, I I began doing that as a as they call it a practice of of <laughs> of, 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 of at the shrine of, of imagining that day by whatever yes. by by you know whenever it comes and and we hope and it, it probably won't be November third because right. of the difficulty of counting votes because it's rigged and because it's well, rigged and because he because of his his spreading of that untruth. But right. it will happen. And, you know, I've always looked at those pictures of like VE Day and VJ Day in Times Square mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. And I meant, wow, what would that be like? I think we'll have it. We're going to have it. I think we will. I'm going to put on my seven league boots and find you in Connecticut and give you a big hug. Please, I'll put on my sailor suit. Yes, excellent. <laughs> Kurt, it's been really fun talking to you. And the book, again, is Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America. It is a recent history. It's an important history. And it's as fun as the man is to talk to. Thank you so much. Thank you, my dear. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with Lisa Birnbach, who is who is I. My guest this week has been Kurt Anderson. His new book, Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History, is published by I thought it was published by Random House. It is. is it? Yep. What's Ebury Publishing? My British publisher. Oh, yeah. Random House, and you can get it in England. You can follow Kurt on Instagram at Kurt B. Anderson with an E. Don't forget Twitter at KB Anderson and Facebook at Kurt Anderson Books. And your website is KurtAnderson.com. Designed by Lucy Anderson. Oh, fantastic. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. My blog is at LisaBurbach.com where you'll find links and photos and maybe a picture of Anne's garden. 
This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Espresso Rucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, wear a mask and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.